This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Oh, this is kind of like a murder mystery, whodunit kind of story to kick off here with. So it's an unfortunate story. But just recently, the somebody found a grizzly bear uh, floating in a river uh, in the lower mainland area of British Columbia. Uh, particularly, it was found in the Squamish River, uh, August 10th. That's, that's when it was found, so uh, just a little while ago. The BC Conservation Officers uh, Service said they uh, recovered the bear and a necropsy was done on it and they confirmed that the bear had been shot. Then uh, a rope was tied on to its feet, I believe, and it was drug into the Squamish River and and pushed, uh, pushed off in, into the river. So that's all that's known about it how that situation came about is part of the mystery that does not sound like a um, defensive situation of uh, somebody uh, a hunter or whatever i don't know if there's a hunting season down on the coast in early august you know a a self-defense type thing you would not go through all of that effort to you know hide a bear if you had to defend your life you know at least i wouldn't i would just you know, call it in like any good citizen would do if it was a um, a life-threatening situation. Uh, in BC, grizzly bears are not open to hunting to licensed hunters, but under the Constitution, First Nations are allowed to hunt them. They do in many places of the province. It's a constitutional right to harvest grizzly bears for food, social, and ceremonial purposes. This does not make sense either because it basically was killing a bear and dumping it in a river, which makes no sense even if it was uh, a constitutional uh, hunt. I'm not sure First Nations hunt the grizzly bears on the coast. Uh, Everything I've gleaned, the ethos is a little bit different than uh, First Nations in the central interior of BC, Chilcotin, and the far north. So, you know, I, I would kind of rule out that. I would rule out uh, a self-defensive situation, given one that it wasn't hunting season. I don't think in the lower mainland, outside the Vancouverish area, a lot of people are <clears throat> in the backcountry carrying a firearm for bear defense. So, yeah, it's it's a weird one. Now, apparently this bear had been caught by the bc conservation officer service three years ago and when they catch a grizzly bear translocate it somewhere else they put an ear tag in it so they know 
<clears throat> if they ever bump into the same bear again, uh, it's kind of like the two strikes you're out kind of thing. If it's a problem bear and it shows up again, they, they have the ear tag in it. So this one that was found dead had an ear tag in it from three years ago. The bear was known to hang out around the confluence of the, uh, uh, how do you pronounce this? Shake. Shakamus, Shakamus. There we go. Shakamus and Squamish rivers. Yeah, it's a weird one. Um, you know what this made me kind of the reason I wanted to cover this story is it kind of brings a point to mind here. So, British Columbia closed the grizzly bear hunt in 2017. Since then, I see things, I hear people talking, I see stories, uh, I see various incidents like this cropping up all over the province where it's kind of like this wanton killing of grizzly bears. Just these random, no, makes no sense type grizzly bears killed. There was one last year, not far from, you know, where I lived, the scientist actually kind of discovered it because the thing had a radio collar and he was looking for, <clears throat> for his bear. It, it, it concerns me because I'm worried about people starting to think of grizzly bears as pests. They have no value. People see them as being a nuisance, like a skunk or a raccoon, if they're if they're around and threatening or you know bothering your your property or something like that. The tolerance for the bears being around may be less tolerable. Bears may be less tolerable now because they have less social value to some people, <clears throat> maybe in rural areas, because there's no hunting. Now, why would that be the case? Even though there was not a lot of grizzly bears hunted in the province, like 250-ish, 300 for an area of BC, is actually not that many bears. Um, area by area, management unit by management unit, you're just talking about, you know, a very small number of bears, one here, two there, a couple here sort of things that, that were actually allocated and harvested by hunters. So not a lot of bears. However, in the minds of a lot of people, this is a hypothesis of mine, in the minds of a lot of people, there was a hunt on grizzly bears. And so a segment of society, some communities took some solace in the fact that hunters were out there controlling the bear population or, or harvesting bears that uh, were problem bears or that may have wandered into town, that sort of thing. Even though it was probably not really the case, like I said, because there wasn't a lot of, you know, bears uh, shot, you know, valley by valley, region by region. But I, I kind of, I hypothesize that the hunt created this general perception in communities that going, okay, uh, hunters are controlling bear populations. The hunt ended. Then since the hunt ended, I hear lots of stories about there's so many bears now. There's so many grizzly bears out there. Somebody needs to do something. They got to get the population under control. It, whether that's true or not, there are areas that the scientists know grizzly bear populations are increasing. Um, but there's this, this buzz, you know, in, in a lot of the communities of, of more and more bears. So the hunts ended, people are now seeing more bears and they're saying the population's getting out of control. Bears are showing up uh, around people's homes or in communities. Uh, they're showing up on, you know, farms. Some bears are getting into problems. There's been conflict with them. Bears are destroyed, so on and so on. So the combination of all of these things, like I'm, I'm just seeing like these, these indicators that maybe society, a portion of society is seeing the grizzly bear differently now because it's, it has no value. It's not, it's not a hunted species. Nobody's taking care of it. Nobody's managing them. They're just a, a pain in the butt. So if it comes around my farm, gonna, the three S's, chew, shovel, and shut up. 
Whether that was the case here uh, with the Squamish bear, uh, I don't know. No, nobody knows. But the story has triggered this thing that's been in the back of my mind for quite a few years now that one of the values of the hunt was this large carnivore that can cause damage, that can kill people, that can kill livestock, occasionally does, generally stays out of trouble, that the hunt in a way was almost like a placebo. It was satisfying a portion of society that hunting was making sure that grizzly bears <clears throat> weren't a threat to them. Now that the hunt's gone, you know, like I said, maybe people see that that control tool's been lost, bears are just running rampant and nobody's doing anything about it. And there are people that are just willing to take matters into their own hands and kill bears and drag them into rivers or hide them under piles of logs or, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, I've heard all, all different things that have happened just and shot and left. So that's why I wanted to cover this story. I just kind of, it, it's another little story that's happened in British Columbia with a grizzly bear just randomly being shot and left that, that I'm just kind of like, is this another data point that's this indication of this intolerance of grizzly bears? And so, you know, without having testing this hypothesis, I actually kind of feel that that is a real thing. And one of the considerations that's never talked about in what the hunt provided was this level of comfort in communities that grizzly bears aren't a threat. There isn't a reason to take matters into your own hands uh, and deal with bears because there is some hunting on them. So I don't know. I think maybe it would make a good social science study um, to randomly poll people in communities all across uh, British Columbia and see what their attitudes are towards the grizzly bear. This is where these types of things are so valuable to have these types of studies like just ongoing because then when the hunt ban was put in place, you know, we could have compared social attitudes towards grizzly bears before and after uh, legal hunting. So that would have been like super valuable and wildlife managers would have went, holy smokes, we've, we're seeing this big shift in society's attitude towards the bears. We're seeing more bears being illegally killed and left maybe they would put two and two together and, and realize that there was a social value to hunting grizzly bears that actually prevented poaching and wanton killing, um, discriminating against, um, bears because there's no hunting season on them. So anyways, um, yeah. What do you, what do you think of that idea? What do you know about it? Have you ever seen, something like that where you live uh, with any type of animal the shift in the way society views the animal i've covered the canada goose story across this country multiple times and it's very clear that in urban areas when geese congregate in parks near water and shit on the place society no longer loves its wildlife in canada they hate the canada goose and they want to they want to do culls and they kill the eggs and all this kind of stuff. You've, you've listened to all those stories. So, uh, I've seen it with uh, urban deer as well in communities where I live. It's like, Oh, look, there's some deer showing up in the communities. Isn't that cool? Here's nature on my front lawn. Let's put some deer feed out for them in the wintertime because they need to be fed. It's so pretty. And then years later, it's like, damn deer, they're eating my bushes and they've stripped my cedar trees and they're, the buck rubbed on that little willow that I planted and killed it. And it's like, somebody needs to come and get rid of these deer. And it's like pitchfork and tor uh, torches. And it's like communities like, we hate the deer and like, get rid of the deer, you know, and, and sort of thing. So I've seen, I've seen a social attitude shift uh, as well with, um, with urban deer. And I think this has been documented in various places around the world when there's um, an animal that is at a certain population level, it's tolerable. And then when that population starts to flourish, 
then you push people over the tipping point of we like this thing. Now there's so many of them. We're seeing the repercussions or the consequences of the damages that they do to our property. And um, like the urban areas, the deer like to like kick the shit out of baby strollers and people's dogs and stuff. And so people are fed up and, and they, they go the other direction. We we're now sick of these animals. And there's a concept in wildlife management called um, you've heard of like carrying capacity. So the land, uh, the habitat has a certain carrying capacity because it can only grow so much food. So if the, uh, the deer get overabundant, then there's a big a die off. Hunting can be used to balance carrying capacity with the numbers of animals. There's this concept called social carrying capacity. And there's a certain number of animals uh, that have a capacity to be tolerated by society. And if there gets to be too many of them, then you exceed what society will tolerate. And now that animal becomes a pest. And that's when you see some of the, the bad stuff happen, the wanton killing. I've seen stories all across Canada of urban deer with arrows stuck in them. Um, especially crossbow bolts, like through the side of the neck or the face or something like that. And I firmly believe that that is somebody in the community that is sick and tired of deer eating their flowers and their shrubs or whatever. They go to some local hardware store, they buy a crossbow and they figure out how to load it and they point it and, and not being a hunter to know to shoot it behind the front shoulders. They just like, Oh, I'll just shoot it in the head and, wound this deer or whatever. So there's all types of things like this. And I love following these stories because I'm looking for these indicators of, of society's attitude shifting. We've reached social carrying capacity. We've reached social carrying capacity for Canada geese in a lot of urban park areas. That's very clear across this country. Uh, there's places in Eastern Canada where moose are the same way. It's like they, there's so many accidents on the highway. It's like people have had enough of, of you know, there just being too many moose. So in this case, uh, not that we have too many grizzly bears, most likely uh, that is not the case, especially closer to the major urban area, British Columbia being, you know, in the, the Squamish area, you know, it's on, on the way uh, up into Whistler and, and whatnot is, um, you know, heavily populated. There's still grizzly bears living up there and, and whatnot. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's also kind of sad from a conservation perspective too, because some of the grizzly bear populations that are having the, the hardest time, um, stabilizing are a couple of populations that are down in the Southern southwestern part of British Columbia towards the lower mainland, Vancouver, Whistlerish area, Pemberton kind of area. There's some grizzly bear populations that are so small, they're not, um, the males aren't moving back and forth between the various subpopulations. And, and so they're, the bears are genetically becoming constrained because there's no DNA transfer between populations. And there, some scientists are concerned that those bear populations are going to are going to blink out uh, if they don't find a way to connect those bear populations. So for this bear um, to come to, to die in an area uh, that's, that's close to that could actually represent quite a significant blow to grizzly bear conservation uh, down there in coastal BC. Skipping over to Manitoba, um, this is kind of a, this, this story's got a lot going on on it. So in Nopiming Provincial Park, somebody discovered this summer in the area of the provincial park that was set aside to protect habitat for endangered caribou was being staked by a mining company. Crazy. So Manitoba government has, from what I read, kind of rejected this idea of the 3030 having 30% protected areas by the year 2030. And they've gone on a big uh, campaign of trying to fire up its mining industry, particularly rare earth metals and particularly lithium, which is the metal that's needed for all of these electric car batteries and 
uh, lithium rechargeable batteries. There's a big gold rush, so to speak, on in Eastern Canada, exploring for lithium deposits because of the demand for shifting to electric cars. Now, this park, this provincial park, uh, allows resource extraction. About 60% of the provincial park um, of, I think, maybe all Manitoba provincial parks, correct me if I'm wrong, if you're from Manitoba, uh, they allow, uh, have designated areas where they can actually do some resource extraction. So that would be uh, mining and logging. Then they have backcountry and wilderness areas, which have designations on them that prevent the industrial activities from doing anything in those parts of the provincial park. Now, this area where the mining claim was established was a 270 square kilometer backcountry area of the Noping Provincial Park that was specifically set aside, like I said, uh, a boreal forest, and it was for woodland caribou uh, habitat, and it was a calving area for, for woodland caribou. Now, the story that I've read on it is, is it said it was a lithium uh, mining exploration company uh, that has put the claim in and no official government investigation or conclusion has been done on it yet to determine whether someone just accidentally uh, was running around staking mining claims and went into an area of the provincial park they weren't supposed to or whether it was done on purpose or whether some government direction was provided to open up a part of the um, protected area of the provincial park. So we'll wait to see what happens with that one. Nova Scotia. Uh, recently there was a person uh, riding a bike in Cape Breton uh, Highlands National Park and was attacked by a coyote. So person was okay, received some minor injuries, treated, released. Parks Canada has been on the hunt for this coyote. Apparently they have come across it a couple of times and officials have shot at the coyote and missed it. And it's being branded as a coyote that is quote unquote fearless. So they're, I don't know whether they're just playing it up so that when they do kill it, they got, you know, we got the, the fearless coyote of Cape Breton Highlands National Park is, is, has been, been killed and everybody's safe or, or whether or not, you know, they're truly characterizing the animal's behavior as being something very different than the other coyotes in the area. That's actually kind of how I interpret it. You know, not not glamorizing uh, the animal if they do happen to kill it, but but they just sort of said it's 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 fearless. How somebody would have shot at it, missed it if it was a fearless coyote that wasn't going to run away as soon as it saw people. Anyways, stuff happens. I went hunting this morning, missed some geese, so it does happen. We miss. One of the reasons I wanted to cover this story because I always kind of cover stuff, you know, about coyotes attacks, and you know, we just keep our finger on the pulse of this trend that seems to be increasing over the last couple of years all across Canada actually is Cape Breton was a location where a young woman was attacked and killed by a coyote in 2009. It is the only the second ever recorded case of a person in North America being killed by a coyote and it was in the same general area uh, um, Cape Breton area of Nova Scotia where this story of the cyclist being attacked happened. There was a scientific paper that was published quite a, quite a few years after uh, the 2009 uh, fatal attack. The conclusion of that paper basically was asking the question like, why would a coyote attack like a big person? Like it, it's way bigger than anything that it would normally be hunting. And this is what the scientists came to the conclusion. There was an unusual combination of winter snow conditions that year in 2009 and coyotes were unable to, as I remember it, coyotes were unable to hunt 
uh, a lot of the rodents because I don't think they could get through the snow. Uh, if that's how I remember it, like hard crusted, rain crusted snow and coyotes were starving and they actually turned to hunting moose. And so the coyotes learned to see these great big animals of a moose as prey and they were doing what they could to go after them. Normally they would just scavenge, but they, uh, you know, a moose carcass may be killed by wolves or, or winter kill or whatever. But this was a case where the coyotes actually were forced to turn to hunting moose. And the theory here is that coyotes saw this person and it was big. They were into the frame of mind of seeing big things on the landscape as prey. And they did what is known as uh, uh, prey switching, which is to go from this big animal to that big animal and try to attack it too. And just unfortunately, the uh, it was a person, a human being that they, uh, they tried to switch over to. So now whether or not there's some kind of like, like weird little thing uh, going on in the Cape Breton area with coyotes that have, um, you know, generations of coyotes that have, you know, become habitually learned to hunt big things. And a person on a bicycle was, was targeted as a, as a prey species. I don't know. 2009 to 200, 2023 is a long time to actually only have two incidents for that to be kind of any type of uh, theory that holds water in, in um, the Cape Breton area with rogue big game hunting coyotes. Okay, skipping back over to British Columbia. In north, the very extreme northeastern northwestern corner of British Columbia, sorry, there's a little tiny uh, point of land that sort of hooks down and it's where British Columbia and the Yukon and Alaska all kind of merge. And just inside that little point uh, of, of land, it's like a little tag that hangs off the northwest corner of BC is a small community called Atlan. I've been there, stayed there for a bunch of summers working, pretty cool place uh, right on the shores of Teresa Island, beautiful country up there. The Taku River Tlingit First Nations recently came out and made a public statement uh, from Atlan asking hunters to avoid coming to their traditional territory this year. They're asking hunters to not hunt moose and they're asking their own citizens um, members of the nation as well as licensed hunters to not partake in moose hunting in their in their territory this year uh, in and around Atland. the the statement that was released said it was made in good good faith uh, in an effort to quote unquote take serious action to protect vulnerable moose populations on their territories. A government census that was done in January of 2022, uh, the, the uh, moose inventory showed that there were only 17 bulls per 100 cows. That's done usually in um, January, February. So after hunting seasons, they look for how many bulls uh, made it through hunting season because that's your driving population the power to drive your population before next hunting season. So the provincial minimum for low density moose populations is 50 bulls per hundred cows. So that is a big gap in the Atlan area to count only 17 bulls per hundred cows. And in a low density moose area, meaning an area of the province where the moose are scattered over large areas. So the density of moose is low. The, objective is 50 bulls per hundred cows. And so the Taku Tlingit First Nation said, man, we got to like back off these moose. And they just put out a voluntary plea <laughs> for everybody to, um, you know, not partake in, in moose hunting this year. Part of what's happening up there is the North has become over my lifetime, a more and more and more popular area for hunters in the southern part of British Columbia to take two, three weeks, 
big expeditions and go to the far north and hunt moose, caribou, and stone sheep. A while ago, I covered a story, uh, and it was also on the Hunter Conservationist podcast, about a really controversial last-minute decision that the British Columbia government made to reduce the number of moose hunters in the northeastern part of the province, so on the other side of the province from where Atlan is, which essentially, if I remember the numbers right, was having the moose harvest from about 1500 bulls to the target was was uh six or seven hundred or something like that which essentially took about three thousand people out of the 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 game for moose hunting in northeastern bc where there's more moose and part of the fear whenever they do something like that is the demand to go to the north and hunt is still there and so it's called the waterbed effect where it's like you push on the waterbed and this big ripple just goes somewhere else on the bed so that's a phenomenon they actually use in wildlife management here so the waterbed effect was in the northeast then the ripple effect would be as like all the hunters are like well we'll go to the northwest where there's you know, still ample moose hunting opportunities. And so people that live in the community of Atlan are seeing more and more um, uh, hunters from outside their uh, community coming in to hunt there, having concerns about the low bulls per hundred cows, um, First Nations having a concern about actually harvesting moose for their community members and their elders. All of that's layering on top of each other and it's created this situation where the nation came out and made this formal statement kind of asking people to you know stay away some people will some people won't that's how these types of requests by first nations have been going in my experience in the province of bc now the story that i read on this in by cbc they also interviewed uh they interviewed a representative of the nation and then they interviewed uh like a local hunter from atland who said yeah i i live here i hunt um i uh, hunt moose for sustenance and yes i'm going to um uphold what the nation is asking refrain from hunting moose this year and the person was quoted as saying she's seen an increase in outside hunters coming to atland um my interpretation that sort of talking about the problem is getting worse and more and more hunters and this is a little outside of this story but that one came sort of raised a red flag for me and i've seen this before this idea of outside hunters and what is the bounds or the jurisdiction of where somebody can claim an area of the province is going well this area is for locals and these people from over here that come to this area are outsiders i've actually seen it go as far as people saying outsiders should not be allowed to get a moose permit in this region now this is an interesting one uh, how do you define a local Everybody is a citizen of the province. Everybody pays taxes. Everybody buys the same hunting license. Everybody has the same um, uh, hunting regulations to follow. And people like to enjoy the province that they live in and travel around and have different experiences and hunt different species. If you live in Vancouver or Chilliwack or Abbotsford, you pretty much have to travel, make big travel trips to go on a big hunting expedition and sometimes that's all folks in in those areas can get in is two or three weeks a year and they make a big you know uh, trip to northern bc it's still in their province uh you know they're they're not an outsider in their own province but there's i've seen this concept floated around that it's like oh it's these outsiders or these vancouver hunters are coming to cranbrook or you know or i live and it and it becomes pretty tough to say well should they draw lines around an area and say if you don't live in that 
hunting management unit, you're not allowed to hunt there, then it's almost like every management unit in the province becomes its own little um, mini province where you'd have to just buy a hunting license and a tag because you were and prove that you're a resident of, of that region which would mean the vast majority of the population of British Columbians could not go hunt caribou or stone sheep or moose because they don't live in the far north. Very few people live out there. So it, you know, it, it and, and it, it starts to bring in bigger questions sort of like, well, if you're from Vancouver and someone in Atlin doesn't want you coming up to hunt in their area because you are an outsider, but then the person in Atlin falls sick and the provincial air ambulance has to fly up and bring them to the hospital in Vancouver. You know, it, it, it starts to become really tricky. Uh, you know, who gets, who gets to do what, who gets to go where, who's a local, who's an outsider. My general philosophy is, is the province is your home ground. The bigger your province, the more species you have like Alberta and British Columbia, you have the opportunity to travel anywhere in that province. Take it up. It's yours. Um, you're paying for it. It belongs to you. And we should all be allowed to travel. If there's an issue with the moose harvest in an area or any harvest, then that's up to the managers to regulate that by hunting seasons and permits. But in my opinion, if you go to the permit system, you can't start restricting who can and can't apply for those permits within the province by discriminating against them based on where they live. I think if that happened, what you'd see is you'd have see people move from the southern part of the province to the northern part of the province, hunt a stone sheep, get a ram, and then move back down. I don't know. <clears throat> and there's all types of crazy stuff, you know, like people buy a house in Tumblr Ridge and <clears throat> get a mailing address there. And then that's where they say they live and all this kind of stuff. So <clears throat> I don't know. You're not an outsider if you're hunting within your own province. That's my, that's my take on it. But if there's conservation concerns of a population of moose or whatever in any part of the province, then that needs to be dealt with across the board for all hunters caribou in Ontario. I uh, covered a story a little while ago about <clears throat> kind of the controversy around the endangered caribou herds in Ontario, the federal government threatening to impose uh, the federal species at risk habitat protection clauses. If the province didn't do something, the feds were saber rattling that they were going to do something. The feds have been saber rattling in a few provinces, Quebec, Ontario, They've done it in BC and Alberta to try to get the provinces off their butts to invest in, in uh, caribou conservation. So here's what Ontario's done. They've created a caribou conservation program, put $20 million into it, and then said you can apply for this $20 million uh, by, uh, I think, September of, of the end of September this year. And people that are part of um, nonprofit groups, indigenous communities, and other conservation organizations can apply for funds and projects that are focusing on habitat protection and research, uh, habitat restoration, reducing threats to caribou, as well as gathering uh, information about local indigenous uh, traditional knowledge about caribou would all be acceptable proposals. So good, you know, Ontario's putting $20 million towards caribou recovery always seems to be the story that they'll throw money at a beleaguered caribou herd anywhere in Canada when there's only a handful of animals left as kind of the last, you know, Hail Mary, throw some money. And in this case, this actually kind of bothers me, this, this one here in Ontario, because what the government of Ontario has said is we've created a situation where through our management of the natural resource, we've let the public's caribou slip to the point of conservation concern where they could blink out. And now we're going to just put $20 million in an account 
and you can take the money and try to fix the caribou population. That rubs me the wrong way, actually. I'm kind of like the government had the responsibility under the public trust doctrine to not have let these caribou get anywhere near this in the first place, which a lot of these problems with the caribou in Canada started way back in the 50s and 60s with, with high rates of resource extraction. And now here's a case where the response to having to do something to please the federal government is $20 million, which is actually not a lot of money to the federal government. It's like a, a, a decimal point in in uh, federal budget accounting and stuff, is they've transferred the accountability and the responsibility for caribou recovery back onto the people, the people of the province and the indigenous communities. And that to me is an abdication under the public trust doctrine in the first place of the people of Ontario that elected a government to manage the caribou on their behalf under the public trust doctrine. So everybody likes money for projects and, you know, they get to put their names on things and they get to do, you know, get money and buy stuff. And, you know, some people like to feel good that stuff is getting done. $20 million gets burned up pretty fast. And I've seen these before where money gets spent on, public education and uh, community meetings and branded hats and t-shirts and stickers and all these types of things, stuff that never actually matters to a caribou. So yeah, some of this money is not going to make a difference to caribou. There might be some good projects or good research uh, that will help caribou. But at the end of the day, I would call upon organizations in Ontario, like the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters to kind of call BS on this. It's like $20 million is a great start. Pump it up to $200 million and the government get in there and do what it has to do to recover caribou. And we want to see caribou numbers on the increase and we want to see you stop logging and mining in caribou habitat until caribou reach this threshold. That's what I would like to see happen in Ontario. So um, as my friend Jesse Zeman, the executive director of the BC Wildlife Federation, always says when government throws money at a cause or, or an issue like this, he, he's like, thank you. That's a good start. Give us more. <laughs> so give us more money for caribou in Ontario or do something about it yourself, Ontario government. All right, bouncing back, kind of bouncing around the country uh, on this episode, back bouncing back to British Columbia. So in BC, there is a, an independent watchdog called the Forest Practices Board. Their job is to oversee forced legislation by companies and by government and audit them and say, are you following the laws and doing a good job? in managing the public's interest in forests. So they recently released a uh, in investigative report about the management of habitat under forest legislation to protect known species at risk. So what they found was when there were formal legislated objectives set for a species at risk in a given area of the province, the compliance with those habitat protection regulations was generally pretty good by government and industry. But what they noted in the investigation report is the Forest Practices Board said that the government has a general lack of transparency on how it's making decisions to balance the interests of timber and species at risk habitat. So anytime you have logging in an area where a species at risk lives, say like the spotted owl or the fisher, and there's regulations to say to do certain things to protect the habitat of those species, but you can still do a little bit of logging, somehow 
some manager has to make a decision in a specific area on specific cut blocks on how to balance the habitat protection with getting some timber out of the area. So what the Forest Practices Board said is that decision-making process of how they're making those trade-offs in the species at risk areas is not transparent. They don't know how these decisions are being made. In other words, they don't know if species at risk are getting properly um, considered and whether or not these decisions are it's like favoring timber extraction and not as good as what they could be at species at risk. Uh, the board is saying there's just a lack of transparency on how these balance decisions are made. The other thing that the Forest Practices Board concluded in this investigative report is they said adding wildlife species to the species at risk list in the province of BC is a slow and cumbersome process that has not kept pace with this with the numbers of species that scientists are identifying as being at risk now. British Columbia has, from what I understand, I remember seeing an infographic a couple of years ago, British Columbia has more species of at risk in all the categories, vertebrates, invertebrates, uh, and plants than anywhere else in Canada. And BC is the only or one of the only provinces in British or in Canada that does not have provincial species at risk legislation. It was actually a promise that the NDP government had way back in 2016, along with if they got elected, they were going to end the grizzly bear hunting and they were going to bring in uh, provincial species at risk legislation. And that never happened. So that was a, you know, part and part of the criticism of the Forest Practices Board in species at risk protection is that the province is not doing a good job uh, in keeping up to speed on the numbers of species that are becoming at risk because uh, you know every time a new species is identified by scientists then you know okay where are they and what are their habitat requirements what objectives need to be set uh, to ensure that logging is protecting this species at risk so that's the whole circle of habitat protection that goes on uh, that the Forest Practices Board is just saying that considering the new species is just a slow, slow process in BC. All right, uh, jumping around a little bit more to a story um, just a couple of days ago that uh, the Federal Fisheries and Oceans uh, Ministry announced a 644 $4,000 fund uh, has been created for Indigenous groups, industry, and academia to take on three SEAL scientific research projects in Eastern Canada and one sea lion research project in Western Canada. So Pacific Ocean, three projects on the Atlantic and three, uh, one project on the Pacific. The, the primary thrust of this uh, has been that they want to examine or, or research and better understand seal and sea lion diets and the abundance of seals and sea lions on the coast to better understand how many fish that these sea lions and seals are eating. So there's a lot of information that says on the East Coast that the seal populations are so high that they're eating, what was the figure I saw the other day? It was like 30 times the commercial fisheries industry's catch is what the seals uh, are eating. On the West Coast, people are saying that the seal and sea lion populations are having a significant impact on Pacific salmon, uh, specifically Chinook, which is the uh, primary food species of the endangered southern resident killer whale pod. And there's been calls for a seal hunt uh, on the west coast of Canada uh, because of that. So 
maybe so one of the things that's cool about this announcement is this has been driven by conservation groups so um, the sealing organizations the fur institute of canada um, all of those groups have lobbied the government last year in the big um, conference that they had in halifax i believe it was that they got the ear of the minister to say you gotta give us some money to to research what the heck is going on with these seals and sea lions and, and what they're actually eating and get some science behind it so we can take management steps. So so it's good to see that advocacy driving uh, some funding. Now, I have heard from sources, my contacts, that the federal government is somewhat open to the idea of a seal, sea lion hunt on the west coast of Canada, which currently does not exist. In fact, um, if I'm right in interpreting this, the federal government, Fisheries and Oceans, does not even allow a quota for indigenous hunters on the west coast, but they do on the east coast. So there's some imbalances there. Apparently, the federal government might be receptive to the idea of a seal hunt on the west coast uh, which would be pretty cool i think that would be very exciting for one for both first nations and for licensed hunters uh, they do it on the east coast i know folks there that uh, they take their families out in the winter time and it's like they get seals just like you and i get deer or, or ducks or whatever so uh i think people that live on uh coastal british columbia if they had a chance to go out and hunt some seals or maybe not even make a trip from the rocky mountains and go try to get a seal or something so uh, that would be pretty cool but yeah it's just kind of like you know um grapevine sort of uh stuff that i you know inklings of things that i'm i'm learning through through my network so we'll see where this seal study goes uh, in a couple of years from now, and if that becomes some science to help support uh, a hunt on the Pacific coast of Canada and maybe some expanded hunting opportunities uh, in on the uh, east coast as well, that would be that would be pretty cool. So there you go. Kind of a whole smattering of things with the who done it murder mystery of the grizzly bear mystery of the rope that was drug into the Squamish River on August 10th. If you know anything, contact the BC Conservation Officer Service. You probably don't know any more than I do. So it uh, could end up being a mystery case that's never solved. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and uh, we'll see you in the next episode.